Heavenly Father, we acknowledge you in all that has happened. The trials come from you, that difficulties come from you, that opportunities come from you. And in all that has happened in this season and continues to happen, you have brought us through this for purposes of growth, maturity, stamina, and perseverance, patience, and godliness. And Father, we thank you for trials, as you tell us to in your word. We thank you for the season we've had. We look forward now, Father, to the new season that you are bringing us, and we ask, Father, that you would make the most of what will come next for us, for this church, for this city, for the mission you've given us. Help us prepare, help us grow, strengthen us through the worship music that you are inspiring be written in this church. We ask you, Father, to teach us through the word that, that I and others are teaching as you have asked. I pray, Father, for the encouragement and the prayer that is being lifted up to and, and with and for our members here at this church. I thank you, Father, for the gifts of many who are serving, all that you are doing. We acknowledge all of it. We thank you for all of it. We ask, Father, that you would magnify it. And in your word today, Father, as you teach us through Jesus' example, I pray you would reinforce for us this important discipline that we study today in Jesus' example in the garden. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our study of the Passion of Christ gets going today in full force with Christ's arrest uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And actually today we're going to deal with the events that lead up to that moment. And the challenge for us as you go into a study like this, into the passion of Christ, is coming to an appreciation of an understanding of what it was like to, to go through these circumstances as a man, as Jesus was, and at the same time to appreciate these circumstances knowing he was God. That is, you have to balance these two uh, seemingly contradictory perspectives. On the one hand, you need to be able to put yourself in the place of a man who is facing an extraordinarily excruciatingly painful death. And on the other hand, you have to put yourself in the position of what it would be like to be God, suffering and dying unnecessarily, that is, not for his own sake. What was it like for Jesus to face that moment, knowing exactly what it was gonna be like, knowing what lies ahead? What were his emotions? What were his fears? What were his temptations? And how did he face them with such strength? And knowing he was God, did that make the process easier for him? I mean, can God truly die? How do you explain this seemingly impossible circumstance without wandering into some kind of theological error? You know, in the early church, there were those false teachers who tried to address this set of circumstances by claiming wrongly that at the moment Jesus died on the cross, he was no longer God, that the Spirit of God left Jesus before he died, so that at the moment he died, it was simply a man dying on a cross. And that's contrary to the Bible. That's an example of how sometimes we can search too hard to find answers that elude us. So we don't want to introduce error like that in our study. We want to know how did Jesus endure the torment of the cross and all that led up to it, and at the same time, how can he be an eternal, transcendent God and go through that process? And we start that journey today looking at the anticipation that Jesus experienced in the garden on that Wednesday night. His disciples have accompanied him out of the city of Jerusalem now for the last time, a free man, after the Passover meal that we studied. 
And they have gone through the Kidron Valley up the western slope of the Mount of Olives where they find a garden called Gethsemane. Now, we don't know the exact location of that garden today. We know it's just somewhere up on that western side of the Mount of Olives. If you've been to Israel and to Jerusalem, when you are in the old city of Jerusalem and you look eastward, you're looking up the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And somewhere there, Jesus stopped for this evening with his disciples. The hour is late. It's probably around midnight. And the disciples are weary. It's been a long day. Earlier, if you remember, Jesus dismissed Judas from the meal, and that allowed him time to begin the process of betraying Jesus. And what that means, most likely, is that Judas went and found the chief priests, as he promised to do. He reported to them that he knows Jesus spends his evenings up on the Mount of Olives. And from there, the priests would have probably taken Judas to a Roman official of some kind to seek an arrest warrant and the Roman soldiers necessary to carry it out. All of that's going on somewhere in the city. And while it's happening, Jesus is sitting, awaiting his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing full well what's coming, and, I should add, being fully capable of stopping it, should he wish to. And that begins Jesus' extreme emotional and mental anguish as he contemplates the terror that is coming while at the same time resisting the urge to stop it. And we pick up there in Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. So Jesus, as we see, enters the garden. He asks eight of his disciples to stay near the entrance of that garden and wait. And he takes Peter, James, and John, the three men who really are his inner circle within the 12, and he calls them further up the hillside, up the mountainside with him, somewhere deeper into the garden. And he says, I want you here in my company in the midst of my suffering and my distress. Now, I want you to have that perspective in your mind. That's the the image you need to be carrying with you right now as you read the account that we're studying today. I want you to imagine a Jesus who is visibly distressed, just as you would be, as I would be, if we were in his place right now, knowing what was about to unfold. In a few hours, Jesus is going to endure first beatings, by Roman soldiers who were trained in how to inflict maximum pain without mercy. And then those beatings are going to be followed by a scourging, and the scourging that accompanied crucifixion often was so bad that it could either kill the victim outright or bring them near to death as a result of the shock and the blood loss. And then, if that weren't enough, he'll have a crown of thorns thrust into his scalp, and then from there he'll be forced to carry a beam of wood bearing down on his shredded back, which is, again, torture in itself. And then, of course, at the end of all of this unbelievable torment, Jesus gets nailed to a cross to hang in excruciating pain, fighting for breath the whole time. In fact, we get the word excruciating from the word crucifixion. Now, we know these things happen because we can read about them. And in fact, we all know them well. But even still, you don't know what it felt like. You haven't experienced it. You can know of it, but you really can't understand 
what it was like. But Jesus, even now in the garden before it begins, Jesus in his omniscience says, God, he knows exactly what is going to happen to him before it starts. But more than that, he also knows exactly what it will feel like. So in effect, he's feeling all of it before he has to experience it. And then to add to his torture, and I think this is the part that we often overlook, Jesus possessed the power to stop it all if he chose to. In the next passage, a little later on, Jesus is going to remark uh, to his disciples that he has the ability to stop this process anytime he wants by calling down a legion of angels. Now, I want you to imagine this for a moment. Can you imagine facing the suffering that he knows is coming and knows what it will be like and doing that also knowing you have the power to stop it. You imagine the temptation to say no. That's the state of mind that Jesus now enters into as he awaits Judas and the Romans in this garden. He is distressed both by what he knows is coming, but also by his flesh's desire to say no to it, not allow it to happen, and the fight that now must be within him as a result. And I hope that gives you an appreciation for what Matthew means when he describes Christ's state of mind here as deeply grieved to the point of death. You know, if if you have a teenager who says that he's starving to death or that, you know, she's so embarrassed she could die, well, you know that's hyperbola. But when Jesus says he is deeply grieved to the point of death, he means it literally. That is, he's so disturbed by all that's coming upon him and the struggle to go through with it, that he felt as if the stress that was inside him could potentially take his life if it were possible. I mean, for example, Luke in his account of this moment reports that Jesus experienced a a rare condition that night. Medically, we call it hematohydrosis, and it's a condition uh, brought about by extreme stress. It's a situation in which the small capillaries that are at the surface of your skin in your scalp will burst under the pressure from the body's stress reaction in a difficult moment. And as those capillaries burst, the blood will seep out into the nearby sweat glands. And so the person will literally appear to be sweating blood as the blood comes out through their sweat pores. And Luke tells us that's what Jesus was experiencing. That is the kind of stress that few of us have ever known, which tells you that Jesus' anticipation of these events on that night was every bit as much torture as the events that are going to follow. And Jesus, as he's in that moment, as he's contemplating all of these things, he asks his disciples, I want you to accompany me, these three men, up the hillside. I want you to be with me in my time of distress. I want you to accompany me in prayer. And it makes perfect sense, right? Humanly speaking, we, we look for company in times of stress or trial. There's a comforting quality to having someone else with you in that moment. And in this case, that's certainly part of what Jesus is doing. But there's actually another, more important, larger purpose in what Jesus is doing by inviting these three men to join him in this moment. And you can see that in verse 38. Because Jesus says to these three disciples, they should remain with him. And you notice, keep watch with me. Now, what was Jesus asking them to watch for? One obvious answer you might propose is that he's wanting them to help watch for Judas and the approaching Romans, but that doesn't make any sense. 
I mean, they didn't know Judas was coming, so they wouldn't have been knowing to watch for it. And moreover, why would Jesus need someone to watch for that? I mean, it's not like he's gonna miss Judas and the soldiers when they arrive. No, Jesus had something else on his mind, and you see what that is in the next section of this passage, going forward in verse 39. Speaking of Jesus, Matthew says, and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And from that point, Jesus goes a little farther by himself. As you see here, he puts his face on the ground to pray alone. And, and Jesus prays that the Father would allow this moment to pass Jesus by. Now, this is the only time in the Gospels when Jesus addresses God in prayer as my Father. And I think that matches his mood here. You know, if, uh, if you're a distressed child, for example, you know, you go to your Father for help and you make that kind of a personal Appeal, and I feel that that's the mood Jesus is in. That's the mindset that he's in here. And adding to that, by the way, this is the only time in the Gospels when you see Jesus asking something from the Father that the Father cannot give him. But when you look more closely at the prayer, you you see that Jesus knew that. He knew that the Father could not grant this request. In fact, the Bible makes clear Jesus is the author of this plan. The Bible says Jesus is the word of God. And that means he is the author of the Bible, the inspired word that has been recorded by men down the centuries. That inspired word came by the Spirit of Christ. Christ is the word. He brought the word to us through that method. And that means he also wrote those passages in the Old Testament that foretell his own crucifixion. For example, this is the word Jesus gave to Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Jesus told us about his death in that passage, among other places, and he did so centuries before it was going to happen. He even said here that he'd be pierced, that he'd be scourged. I mean, you can't get more specific than that. And even before that, Jesus was talking through Moses in the Torah that he would hang from a tree because cursed is all who hang from a tree. That was an oblique reference to crucifixion, even back then. So knowing all of that, how could Jesus have expected the Father to do anything other than what the plan already was? Clearly, he did not expect the Father to give him a yes to this request, and actually you see that in the prayer itself because Jesus says, if possible, and not my will, but your will be done. He's emphasizing here, I know what I want because I feel this now, but I also know what must be. And he asked the Father's will be done, not his own in this moment. And that addition, those little parenthetical comments that Jesus adds, they're so important because if he did not have them in this prayer, if he had just said, take this cup away from me and period, that was the end of it then you and I would be looking at a theological conundrum right now. Because if the God Son asks the God Father to do something, then the Father is going to give it to the Son. That's what the Bible says. 
But we know the, the Father cannot give this request to the Son because if he had done so, he'd be contradicting his own word elsewhere in Scripture, which foretelled that the Son of God would go to a cross. So you literally cannot have a moment in which the Son of God asked the Father, God, to go against his word and stop this process. Otherwise, it would call into question Christ's deity. So Jesus cannot ask for what he's asking for without those parenthetical additions. Moreover, he can't go against the Father's will or else then, that is to say, if the Father forced Jesus to go to the cross against Jesus' own will, then Jesus' sacrifice on the cross would no longer be voluntary, which itself would be contrary to Scripture. The Bible says that Christ goes willingly to the cross for the sins of the world as an act of sacrificial love for the creation. In fact, elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus defines love as being willing to lay your life down for another. So the voluntary nature of Christ's death is critical to the fulfillment of Scripture and to the demonstration of God's love for us. So here you have Jesus in his prayer asking for something that the Father's will cannot provide, that Scripture cannot uh, allow, and that his own purpose in going, his own voluntary need to go to the cross is inconsistent with. And so he's careful to tell the Father that you should ignore my request here if it goes against your will. He asked for the trial to be taken away, yes, but only if that's what God willed. And if you look at the way things turned out, that is Jesus going to the cross, you can say the Father gave Jesus exactly what Jesus asked for. That is, Jesus asked that your will be done, which is what took place. So from a human perspective, I mean, it's completely understandable that Jesus would make this request, even though he knew it could not come to pass. And as a result, this moment is one of the clearest examples of Christ's humanity at work in him that you're gonna see anywhere in the gospel. In fact, I would argue this. If you had not had this moment in the Bible, if Jesus had never prayed to the Father to have this circumstance taken away from him, then you'd have reason to question whether Jesus was truly human or not. There is no way any human being who knew what Jesus knew and understood what was coming was going to go into that trial with anything other than a wish that it would go away. That's his humanity on display. And as a model of prayer under these circumstances, this moment may be the most important prayer in all of the Gospels. I know his high priestly prayer in John's Gospel is certainly held out as the pinnacle of example because of its depth and its length and what it says, and I wouldn't disagree with that. But as a model, as something that you and I can take away and and use in our own prayer life, I don't think there's a moment more important than this one because there is hardly a person alive who couldn't identify with what Jesus is going through right now. Think about your life for a moment and ask yourself this. How many times have you faced a circumstance where you wanna pray for an outcome, for something to happen, something to change, and yet at the same time, though you know God could do it, you're virtually certain he won't. You just know it. I mean, you ask God to save the life of a loved one who's near death, and there is no reason to think that this person is going to pull through. Or you ask God to uh, reverse some natural disaster or to end some worldwide calamity or war, and even though you know he could, there's still that part of you that says, I don't see this happening. I don't think this is in God's will. And when you pray in situations like that, you may find yourself thinking to yourself, well, this is a waste of time. Or 
Maybe you even question whether you're guilty of not having enough faith in God because you just don't think it's gonna work out the way you want. Look, when you get to those moments, I want you to remember Jesus right now. Remember this moment in his life. And when you do, I want you to know your time in prayer under those circumstances is not a waste of time and you are doing nothing wrong. If Jesus can ask the Father to stop a crucifixion that he knew had to happen, then you are not alone in making those kinds of requests. It's only human to bring a request to God the Father knowing that our will is probably outside his even as we desperately wish for something else. And look, you gotta remember, prayer is not a transaction. That's, that's not its intent. You're not sitting down with God making bargains. You're not there in some attempt to work through a, 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 an exchange with God of doing something to get something, et cetera. That's not how prayer is supposed to be understood. It's an opportunity for you to gain the mind of God so that you can understand and persevere in his will. Now look, look at Jesus again. He knew the plan. I mean, he wrote the plan, right? So here he is asking God to change the plan, if he will, to do so. Did God the Son really want the plan to change? I would argue no. But the God Son didn't want it to change, but the Son of Man did want it to change. He felt that stress of going through with it. And it caused him to reach out to God, just like you might under some terrible set of circumstances in which there's a part of you that says, I know we all have to die, but God, does it have to be now for this person I love? And that is not a bad place to be as a Christian who goes to their father in prayer. The solution God gave Jesus under these circumstances will be the solution that we receive under those kinds of circumstances as well. What was the solution? Well, God's will will be done, which ultimately will turn to something very good in God's economy. But in the meantime, you will receive strength to go through the trial. That's what Jesus received. He goes to the cross, but he received the strength that he needed to carry it through because I'm here to tell you that his flesh did not want to do it. And likewise, there are going to be times when you pray for something to change and You do it even though, for the most part, you realize it's not likely to be in God's will, and so you're not expecting it to come to pass in the way you asked, and nonetheless, you go through it. And as you come out of it, you will rejoice in the will of God for knowing his good character and his potential to turn things to good in time. And in the meantime, you will also see how he builds strength in you through that experience and use it for other good purposes down the road. And... Frankly, whether he answers your prayer yes or not, your prayer life is a witness to the world. In other words, even if you don't get what you've asked for or if you do get what you asked for, the the result to someone else who's observing your prayer life is the same either way. That is, they'll see you in your relationship with God gaining strength from understanding his will better though it wasn't your will. Or they'll see the Lord responding to your will as it aligns with his and granting your request, which of course brings him glory as well. And that's what Jesus is experiencing here. I think that's what Jesus meant, by the way, when he told his three disciples to watch. They weren't supposed to watch for Judas. They weren't supposed to watch for the Romans. They're supposed to watch him. They're supposed to watch this prayer. They're supposed to understand this moment. For our sake, they are to be witnesses to what Jesus does in this moment, and as they witness it, they're to record what he said so that we would benefit from it. They could see his anguish. They could understand his distress. I don't think they realized why yet, 
but they knew something was wrong. And they could also see how he went to the Father. And they can see how he prayed for the Father's will in spite of the fact that inside him was every desire to do differently. And then later in their lives, as those three men reflected on that night and on what they heard and as they now understood the big picture that goes with it, they could write things like this to the church. 1 Peter 2, chapter 2, verse 20. Peter, who was one of those three men at that moment, he wrote this, For what credit is there if when you sin you are harshly treated and you endure it with patience? But when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently enduring it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example to follow in his footsteps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept, listen to this, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Peter says that Christ kept entrusting himself to the Father who judges rightly, uh, righteously and did so during times of suffering and trial which he did not deserve. And I think as Peter was writing that, at least in part, his mind had to be going back to this moment as he observed Jesus entrusting himself to the Father's will in that moment of prayer. Thinking back to the garden, he says, that's your example. That's your model for how you would endure suffering when you're being mistreated for reasons that are not of your own. When the enemy or the world is pressing on you and you're doing what's right, but it's not helping because the world isn't interested in what's right. And he says, as you endure that suffering, do so the way Christ did. Do so without striking back, without causing more harm. Do it without a word if necessary. Entrusting yourself to the God who is in control of all these outcomes and is judging righteously in the end. You know, you can look at the situation as some in the world do and say, well, God the Father must be a murderer. He murdered his own son. How can that be just? Well, of course, they don't understand that Jesus was not forced to the cross. He went there willingly as a part of a plan in love for the creation. And you need a prayer like this to see that, don't you? You need to see Christ wrestling with his flesh, yet doing what the Father asked. So, When you look at this moment, you see Jesus starting this prayer. These men commanded to watch so they could record it for us so that we understand Jesus' state of mind. It just begs a big question here. I wonder what else Jesus prayed. What else was on his mind? How else did that prayer go? Well, you know what? We don't know. Why? Well, because of what happens next. In verse 40, we're told Jesus gets one sentence into his prayer and then the guys fall asleep. So he gets up. He goes back to the guys, he wakes them up, chastising them for not staying awake, not able to watch for even an hour, and I think that reference to an hour is probably Jesus' approximation of the time remaining before he's going to be arrested. And then he says, look, you guys should be praying too to avoid temptation. Now, in what he says there, he says that they should be in prayer to avoid temptation. He's speaking, obviously, to them. And some have thought, well, the temptation he's referring to is their temptation to deny Christ or to run away later. Look, okay, that could be true, but I don't think that's what he means because it doesn't really fit the context here. His primary concern right now is that they keep falling asleep. I think that's the temptation. The temptation for them right now is to not stay awake and watch as requested. 
So as the disciples now are awake again, at least for the moment, he goes back to prayer. And look where he goes. Verse 42. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. He's gone right back to the same topic. It's like he doesn't want them to miss it. And he says it a little differently this time. He says, if the cup can't pass away, or it cannot be taken away from me unless I drink it, then let's do what you want. And he's using a metaphor that's very common in the Bible, actually. A drinking of a cup is often a picture of the receiving of the wrath of God, because the Bible uh, sometimes describes the wrath of God for sin being something that is filling up a cup or a bowl, ultimately to be poured out by God on the guilty party and so on. You'll see that in the book of Revelation most commonly or most obviously. And Jesus is using that imagery here, except that in this case, the wrath of God that's being put in the cup is about to be placed on Jesus. But look at his use of the imagery. It's really important. He does not say the cup is gonna be poured out on him. If he had used that metaphor, then it would suggest he was not a voluntary recipient, that God the Father did it to the Son and the Son had nothing to say about it. But it doesn't say that, does it? The Son says, I'm gonna drink it. The indication, of course, is voluntarily he receives it as an act of sacrifice for our sake. That wrath is the wrath you have stored up in that cup, that I have stored up in that cup, that every believer has contributed to storing up. All of that wrath, God looks through the corridors of time, both before and after Jesus' moment on the cross, and he knows all that are being included by that uh, act of, of atonement, of that grace, and he is including all of that in the cup, so to speak. And Jesus is voluntarily drinking that cup. And understandably, he says, I don't really want to do this, I don't, there's a part of me, there's the flesh of me, the the natural part of me, the man of me is not wanting to go through this. Is there another way? Do I have to drink this cup? But at the end again, he says, your will be done. So you have Jesus' humanity desperately seeking a way out of these circumstances, but at the same time you have his divine nature remaining intent on doing the will of the Father, being one with the Father in that respect. And I want to tell you that there's a way, at least in a sense, that we face exactly the same struggle Jesus is facing here. Because like Jesus, we have two sides to our nature. Not the same way he did, obviously, but in a similar way. We have a spirit inside us that because of our faith in Jesus Christ, Romans chapter six tells us that that spirit that we now have as a result of our faith in Jesus, it was born again in the likeness of Christ. It is perfect like Jesus. It does not sin. It does not want to sin. That's the nature of the spirit of every believer. And if it can do the will of God, it will. But standing in its way, so often, of being obedient is our sinful flesh, which is not only not perfect, the Bible says in Romans 7, It is 100% sinful. So you have these polar opposites in your nature. You have a 100% sinless spirit and a 100% sinful body. And of course, white and black mixed together, you end up with gray. And that's how most Christians live their lives from day to day. A little bit of sin, a little bit of righteousness lived out because we're working sometimes in our spirit, sometimes in our flesh. And the Bible calls us to crucify the desires of the flesh and walk in the spirit so that more often we will show the righteousness of Christ lived out. The Bible calls that sanctification. So in the two sides that we know in our life, we too have this battle that 
is going on all the time, a battle for control over what we're gonna do or say or think at any given moment. And in a sense, you're seeing Jesus show us how that battle goes or should go in his case. Now, of course, Jesus did not possess any sin. He didn't have the sinful flesh that we do here. He was not born of Adam, and the Bible makes clear he had no sin in him. Peter just told us that. But I'm making a a comparison here because in a similar sense, Jesus was battling the flesh. In his case, though, he was battling the desire of his body to stay alive, to avoid pain. And those are not sinful desires in the least. They're natural. They're expected. They aren't sin unless Jesus gave in to them. If Jesus were to let his body's weakness in that respect win the argument of what to do, then he would have moved into sin. And that's the struggle Jesus is waging here for our sake, the struggle to avoid the temptation to not go to the cross, for he had the power to stop it. He endured that temptation. He ignored ignored his flesh's desire to avoid the cross so that he could do the Father's will in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Look, if Jesus had to experience that struggle to do the right thing, if he himself, if our Lord in all his perfection still had a struggle in his physical body to do the right thing, not because of sin, but because of the torment it was about to experience, then look, that means he knows and understands that battle very well and therefore he is prepared to help you with your version of it when you are battling the sin of your flesh. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, the writer says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near, and he's speaking here of prayer, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Look, he's saying something profound but simple. Jesus can be your source of strength in times when you know what it is that you should do, but you cannot find the strength in yourself to do it. And he is telling us, the writer of Hebrews is telling us, and Jesus is showing us in his example that your obligation in those moments is to do what Jesus did here, that is to go into prayer with that struggle. You ask the Father what Jesus asked the Father. Remove this trial from me, or if you can't because it's not your will, then help me with strength to get through it without sinning. Look, that's the prayer of every believer most every day. And I think that had to be the main lesson he was trying to show these men and asking them to watch. You notice at the end of the passage we just read, he says that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, you could see that in one of two ways. He could be speaking about the disciples' tendency to fall asleep rather than to watch. And certainly, that is true of them. But let me suggest to you that he might have been talking about himself. That is, in the context of his struggle to go through with the crucifixion, It could be that Jesus is saying, I need you to watch how it is that I am contending with the weakness of my flesh in the midst of this trial. And I think that that is the main lesson of this moment for all of us, watching how our Lord dealt with that moment, how he took his struggle to prayer and how he approached that prayer moment. Remember, one of the other men that was there was John. 
And I told you earlier, their watching of this helped them write the things they wrote later to the church. And listen to what John says, and I believe in part reflecting back on this moment. 1 John 5, 13. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask and we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Now John says that when you pray, you can know that the Father hears you. That's the promise for every believer. Your prayers are heard 100% of the time. And he goes on, he says, you can also be sure he's answering those requests. Now, he does not say, and it's important to see this in the text, he does not say that he gives you what you want. He never says that. But he says, you can be sure you're getting an answer in every case, because he hears you in every case. And that's what you're watching Jesus model here in this moment. Jesus is going to get an answer to this prayer, and he knows it. But the answer might not be what he asks for, because it can't be, because it's not the will of God. And As he asks the Father, in the will of the Father, he still gets an answer which encourages Jesus forward, and that is he gets strength to endure his trial. And I think that's why he asks that these men watch Jesus in this moment. He wants them to see the model at work in his life so they can help us do the same. But they can barely keep their eyes open. So for a third time now, they're going to drift off, which again forces Jesus to interrupt his prayer. Look at verse 43. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. All right, so this scene now repeats a third time. It's almost getting comedic at this point. He commands them to remain awake. Then he goes off and he prays again. Then he comes back to sleep again. As a result, because of this heaviness of sleep with these guys, the gospel doesn't record anything else about what Jesus prayed to the Father about in this moment except, I don't want to die, but I'll do your will. If he did say more in that moment, it's been lost because they slept through it. Uh, But at least they got the main point, and that's what we've been studying. But Jesus' persistence here in the pressing of his disciples to stay awake and in his own Uh, prayer time with the Father, it gives us a model. And I want you to see that model as we end today because if you're like me, sometimes prayer can be a bit of a struggle. Even as you know what you need to do, it doesn't always work out. And here you find some encouragement. In fact, you find two important ingredients for a successful, godly prayer life. And the first of those is persistence. But it's not the kind you may think I mean. That is, we've all heard people tell us to be persistent. The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. This idea that prayer should be a persistent part of our life. Yes, that's true, and I'm all for that too, but that's not what I'm talking about. I don't think that's the lesson you see here. The lesson you see here is the persistence to fight against the weaknesses of the flesh which get in the way of prayer. I mean, how many of us can identify with this situation? You start praying, and then... Almost immediately, you feel like someone has drugged you. You're so sleepy, you just can't keep going. Two minutes ago, you were all awake. You start praying. Next thing you know, you can't keep your eyes open. If you've ever had that experience, then you know what I'm talking about. Or maybe that's not your issue. Maybe you find your mind wandering. 
You start thinking about Christ and prayer in your life and you get into it for a minute or three and the next thing you know, your mind is somewhere else and you wonder where the time has gone and when did you stop praying? You don't even remember. Or maybe you're the kind who, when you start praying, your mind jumps to things like, oh, I forgot about this phone call I need to make or I forgot about this thing I haven't done and so you get up and you leave the prayer moment. Look, all of those are just examples of the same problem. Your flesh is tempting you to cease in prayer. And you need to see it that way, by the way. This is not merely just the, the way our mind works or the, the fact that we're not good at prayer, as some might say. No, you're missing the point. There's a war going on within you. The flesh in you is programmed by its nature to do the opposite of whatever is godly and righteous at all times, including in prayer. So when it's good to be in prayer, your flesh says, don't do it through all of these mechanisms and others. And as a result, when you're tempted by these things, when you let your prayer life slip because your flesh gives you reason to do it, you're seeing in yourself why Jesus has given us this model. He is reminding you that your flesh is weak in everything, including in prayer. So that means you have to develop a strategy of persistence that will let you maintain your focus in your prayer life knowing that your strategy, or that your flesh rather, will be weak. Now let me give you some examples. These might work for you. If you get sleepy when you pray and it stops you from praying, well then make a habit to pray early in the morning or in the middle of the morning when you're wide awake. Or here's one, pray while you take a walk in your neighborhood. Hard to fall asleep while you're walking. Or if you find your mind wandering in prayer, one technique that works is make a list of the things you intend to cover in your prayer before you start, and then just keep your eyes open and focus on that list while you pray. If you're easily distracted by the demands of your life, then block some prayer time on your calendar, turn off your phone. Look, you know, the secret here is not rocket science. It's just understanding where the problems are coming from and taking measures to counteract them. If you ever face a trial like the one Jesus is facing here in this moment. I assure you, you won't be sleepy, you won't be distracted, you'll be on your knees desperately seeking the Father's intervention. But for every one of those moments, you'll have a thousand where it's a normal day, it's your prayer time, you know you should engage in prayer, and your weakness of your flesh is gonna be right there with you, drawing you out of it. And it's in those moments you need a little strategy, a little technique or two, something to help strengthen the spirit against the temptations of the flesh. And Jesus shows you here that you have to be serious about that persistence. Sleeping on the job is not okay when prayer is the order of the day. And then the second thing that you find here as we finish, the second thing that gives you a godly example for your prayer life is you notice Jesus asked these men to watch him pray because he knew that his public vocal prayer in that moment would be an encouragement to them and a source of instruction to them. And I love that little detail because it reminds us that our public prayer moments are powerful witnesses to others, both to believers and to unbelievers. You don't just pray to be noticed, of course, and certainly that was not Jesus' heart here. It wasn't self-serving. He wanted his disciples to watch him because he was gonna teach them something that they needed to know, that we needed to know. And that should be your heart as well. Praying publicly. I've, I've seen this over and over again in groups of one kind or another. People who feel very reluctant to open up and pray publicly among other believers, even if it's just a small group of people. And I remember that feeling. I was once that person. I think we all start there. But do you know how I got past that? Do you know how it became easy for me to pray publicly 
with other people present? By doing it. It's the same way you answer the question, how'd you learn to ride a bike? By doing it. And it's no different with prayer. And you should have a heart that wants to be a witness in that area of your spiritual life. It is good for you to pray publicly, and it is good for those around you to see God working in you through your prayer life. It will teach you to be a more public, courageous witness, and it will teach others about the power of sharing their belief through prayer. And in the long run, as they see your prayer life develop, as they hear your prayer requests being addressed by the Father, answered one way or another, they begin to understand the power of being in that moment with God and of having that discipline in your walk. Prayer primarily is an experience done in private, according to Scripture, but there are times when sharing it with others is the right thing to do. And I love that model here as well. Look at how Jesus approached it. He took three of the 11 men and let them see him praying in public while the other eight were too far away. I think that is a good example in general. Not everyone will see your prayers publicly, but those who are close to you in moments when it matters, they should be brought into that circle. You should share your prayer life with others in that way. Not to show off, not to gain attention, but to teach or encourage others and to be encouraged yourself. Well, that's where we end today. As I read in the text, we see Jesus announced the arrival of his betrayer, but we're gonna wait till next week to pick up with what it means now as Judas comes into the picture again and as Jesus is betrayed. That'll continue our study in the Passion of Christ. That's where we'll be next week. When we come back to this building, and I hope you'll be here with me, we'll be studying probably the most important part of the gospel, the movement of Jesus from being a free man to being a voluntary prisoner and ultimately a sacrifice for us on the cross. Please don't miss that. Please be here with us if you can. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your will to be done. We pray for your will to be done in this church and in the life of everyone who has made this church their home. We pray, Father, that you would grant them health and protection as we gather again. We pray that you would encourage their hearts by seeing one another after such a long time apart. We pray for those who are still too ill or vulnerable to be here, that they would be encouraged from a distance and able to join us soon. And we pray most of all, Father, in thanks to you for your faithfulness as we've continued to minister in your word through this season of separation and now we'll continue together. Let us continue to preach and teach and live out your word every day we have until your son returns for us. And Father, we hope for that day soon. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.